Let me then invite you to return to that chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 2. We will isolate one verse and select that verse as our text. And it will be verse 21. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, we know even from a light reading of this chapter that a great number did call upon the name of the Lord. About 3,000 did after Peter had preached his sermon. And about 3,000 were added to the infant church. And that was a wonderful increase. But what we want to look at today is what brought them to call upon the Lord? What brought them to call upon the name of the Lord? And the title I'd like to give to our meditation this morning is, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? And we will find here that these people who called upon the name of the Lord were Christians. So if we want to know what a, a Christian is, we must go to the Word of God to find what a Christian really is. Because there is much confusion regarding this matter in our world and maybe in the church and for ourselves, maybe in our own congregation here. This chapter here deals with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What happened? Well, if we go back somewhat to the resurrection, Jesus, after he was raised, he revealed himself to the disciples and believers over a period of 40 days. Then after 40 days, in full view of the apostles, he ascended. And he went up into heaven. And they were never to see him again. And after, well, his parting instruction to them was that they were to go back to Jerusalem. And they were to remain there. And they were to wait for the promise. What was the promise? The promise was that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And the Lord had commissioned them to go forth and to preach the gospel. But they were not to go and to preach until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the Holy Spirit was going to enable them, empower them to preach the gospel with clarity, with conviction, and obviously with results. So they did. After the day of ascension... They returned to Jerusalem and were told they were in one place with one accord and were led to believe that they were waiting upon the Lord Jesus to fulfill his promise. And after 10 days, the promise was fulfilled 
and the Holy Spirit descended upon the infant church. Now the day of Pentecost was 50 days following the Passover. And therefore it's all been according to the word of God. And therefore they waited, prayed, and that day suddenly came. And that day transformed the apostles. And that day was a notable day in the church. Well, we want to say one or two things about this. This chapter here may well be divided into three parts. We have uh, Luke here describing the day of Pentecost, a pure narrative, nothing embellishing it. He simply states the facts from verses 1 to 13. And then Peter tells why it happened, why the day of Pentecost happened. And the remaining verses from verse 41 to 47 deal with the effect on the Jerusalem church. It had a tremendous effect. Well, in my introduction, why did this happen? It happened because the Lord Jesus Christ had received a promise from his Father. And he had to fulfill his work. He had to come from heaven. He had to take upon himself our form and nature. And he had ultimately to suffer and to die. In order that there may be a way of escape. That there may be salvation for his people. And that required the life and the death of the Son of God. And having fulfilled his task, he was given a promise. The Father promised that he would send the Holy Spirit upon the church. And here was the Lord Jesus bestowing that gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Remember now, of course, that the church was bereft of the physical presence of the Lord Jesus. He had returned to heaven, but he did not leave them without his presence. His presence was now going to be by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was going to carry on the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ in building his church. And that's the promise that Christ had received from his Father. And because of his obedience, the time was now come to send that promise upon his church. And that's what happened. And there were people there at the time. There had been many Jews from all the known part of the world of that day. They were there. Why were they there? Well, they were there because of the day of, uh, the, day of uh, the Passover, a great religious feast, and they had stayed around. And they were going to celebrate the, the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as it's also called. And therefore they were there. And they witnessed the disciples and the apostles coming out of wherever they were, and they heard them speak of the wonderful things of God in their own language. And to put it very simply for us so that all of us can understand, 
those apostles and those disciples began to speak in a language that they had never learned before. But it was a human language. And in that human language, they were able to bring out and declare the wonderful works of God. Now, I put it to you, friends, that they were not talking about creation. That's a wonderful work of God, of course. But when we're talking here about the wonderful works of God in context, they were talking about and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these foreign Jews, who had come from all of the known parts of the world, we've mentioned them there in these verses, they were amazed. Here were Galileans. And for us to maybe understand a bit deeper, Galileans were looked down upon. They were always ones who were looked down upon because they couldn't always pronounce their words carefully as others could. They were not so highly educated and skilled in speaking as others were. And this was a further amazement to them. Here they were speaking a foreign language that they've never learned and they were declaring the wonderful works of God. Well, that's what happened. And then Peter goes on to tell them why it happened. Why it happened. And this takes up the large part of this chapter. But we want to notice, and we want to ask ourselves that question, that is the title of this sermon. What is a Christian? Or merely, let us put it personally to ourselves. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Can you know if you are a Christian? Well, maybe we'll look at it slightly negatively first. There are many popular stereotypes of what a Christian is. If you ask people, what is a Christian? They'll say various things. And there may be some truth in what they say. They might say a Christian is someone who goes to church. Well, that's true. But it's not the whole truth. The religious leaders of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, they went to the synagogue, which is surely the, the equivalent of church as it is today. And going to a place of worship itself does not make you a Christian. Someone might say then a Christian is someone who prays. Again, that is true. But it's not the whole truth. A Muslim will pray. And he would be highly offended if you would call him a Christian. So do other people who follow other, other religions. They will pray. Or they will endeavor to pray. Or they will say what they say is prayer. But that itself does not make a person a Christian. Many of the people who responded to Peter's first sermon would be religious people, would be people who knew their Bibles, who knew the Scripture, who would be God-fearing, who would be regular church-goers. 
What do we find in verse 5, for instance? And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. The apostle Peter was speaking to religious people. He was speaking to covenant people. He was speaking to people who would acknowledge the one true and the living God as their God. He was talking to people who would pray, who would read the scriptures, who would be familiar with the scriptures. And therefore, all these stereotypes that I have mentioned concerning a Christian do not adequately describe what a Christian is. It's something more than that. A Christian is someone who has been informed about Christ. Now that's not a complete definition. We'll try to get to that as we go through, but this is basic, this is foundational. A Christian is someone who has at least been informed about Christ, about his life and about his ministry, about his death, about his resurrection, about his exaltation and about the fact that he's going to come back. And this is really what we find in Peter's sermon here. And when we look at this and we call this Peter's sermon, we're not to assume for one minute that this is all that Peter said. What we have here maybe in modern parlance is we have his bullet points. We have his headings. He would have said much more than this in his sermon. Does it not say even in verse 40? And with many other words did he testify and exhort, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And therefore, when we look at this sermon, we are to understand that the apostle Peter, what we have here has, is just a summary that has been recorded for us by Luke the historian. But I put it to you that there are at least four things that a person must know and believe before they can possibly be a Christian. And we find these four things in Peter's sermon. What are they? First of all, surely we have gospel events, or we might say gospel facts. There are certain facts that a person must know and be aware of and understand and comprehend and believe before we can possibly call ourselves Christians. And we find that in verses 23 and 24. Here we, see, here we find Peter, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Now this is absolutely essential for us to grasp and to have an understanding of this cardinal central truth of Christianity. This is a fact. And when we noticed, when we went through 1 Corinthians, what was something that the Apostle Paul was keen to proclaim? We preach Christ 
And then he goes on, and him crucified. He did not just preach about Jesus. He did not just preach about his life and his witness and his testimony and his miracles and his great example that he has set for us. No, that's not enough. Now, however repugnant it might be to us, friends, and it is repugnant to many modern people today and many modern minds, but the very fact that Jesus Christ came in order to be crucified, in order to shed his blood, is absolutely essential for saving Christianity. And if we don't understand this, and if we will not grasp this, we cannot call ourselves Christians. It's the theology of blood. And when we look at the crucifixion of Christ, it reminds us, friends, of at least two things. Maybe many more, but two things are absolutely essential for us when we look at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. There, when we look at the cross, when we go to Golgotha and we see Christ there in the center Crucified between two thieves, two malefactors. What do we see? We see God's hatred of sin. That's what we see. Now we know people don't like to talk about sin. People like to tell us that we're all right. There's only maybe something slightly wrong with us. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible makes it clear. There's something drastically wrong with us. Every one of us. No exception. And that matter is sin. Your personal sin is offensive to a holy God. This truly is part of the offense of the cross. It doesn't flatter any one of us. It doesn't flatter the religious, the morally upright. It doesn't satisfy the prostitute or the drunkard or the murderer. It doesn't flatter any of us because it puts all of us on the same level. We might lead uprightly, outwardly good lives but this is God's verdict and when you go to the cross and you study the theology of the cross you get a glimpse and it can only be a glimpse but there you see God's hatred of sin why do we see his hatred well we see his hatred in the fact that he punished his son in the room and place of sinners. His only begotten son. The son of his bosom. The one he has loved from everlasting to everlasting. His only begotten son there. He punished him on Calvary's tree. He laid upon him the iniquity of his people. For he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, when Christ was on the cross, he didn't become a sinner. That would be impossible. 
but he became sin. Sin was imputed to the righteous, innocent Son of God. And there, friends, you see God's wrath and God's hatred upon sin. Oh, but there's another side to the coin. Oh, there's another side to the coin that, that fills our heart with, with delight. And we proclaim, therefore, when you go to the cross, you not only see the hatred of God of sin, you see the love of God towards sinners. How can we possibly see the love of God towards sinners? Well, you see the fact that God punished a substitute in place of sinners. And the, the Apostle Peter here, telling those people who had celebrated the Passover and who were now waiting to, or had taken part in the, the day of Pentecost celebrations, there Christ was crucified. Crucified. What does he say? Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. This was God's purpose for him. Yes, we know that wicked men played their part and they will be held accountable for it. But friends, we recognize it was God's will. God's will. And this is one of the gospel events that he highlights here. It's the crucifixion. But friends, it doesn't end there. He also mentions the resurrection, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. There we have the two great events, the two great gospel events and facts, and they are historical facts, verifiable facts. We don't look to the secular authorities to authenticate or establish the word of God. But friends, it's clear and evident anyone who will read history will tell you that there was a person named Jesus who walked about doing good. Many will acknowledge that. And this Jesus was crucified. And rose again. And the world today is the way it is. Because Christ is indeed alive. The very fact. There are many arguments we could give to support the resurrection. But here's one for you. The very fact. That there is a church today. Some 2,000 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ demonstrates, testifies to the fact that Christ is alive. Why? Because the church has always been persecuted. Always. Yet it's still here. And it will be to the end of time. Why? Because we serve a risen Lord. A risen Lord. One who did die, who suffered, but who is alive. Friends, if you're a Christian, you must believe in the crucifixion. And you must believe in the resurrection. And the very fact that Christ is alive 
will guarantee your resurrection. All of us shall rise again. These are facts. What else? Secondly, he mentions here gospel witnesses. What do I mean by this? Well, he tells them that the life of Christ was predicted in this Old Testament scriptures. The life of the Messiah was predicted. That's one of the witnesses. Verse 25, for instance, he goes on there, For David spake concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and so on. There he's referring to one of the Psalms, the Psalms of David. And what he's basically saying to these people there is, what I've told you about the crucifixion and the resurrection, you'll find it in the Old Testament. Here Peter was able to quote from the Old Testament in his sermon, Look, I've told you about the crucifixion, I've told you about the resurrection, and this agrees with what you find in the Old Testament. Now these men, these devout Jews, would have known the Old Testament, and they would have been able to say to themselves, Well, he's right. We've read that before. Now we know what it means. Jesus has fulfilled it. But that's only one of the gospel witnesses. The Old Testament scriptures testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Messiah that would come. And if you want to know more about Christ, you, you don't simply go to the, the New Testament. You can go to the Old Testament and you'll find Christ in the Old Testament. But there's another witness. It's the apostles themselves. Verse 32, does he not say, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Here's the two witnesses. Old Testament scriptures and the apostles, who were to be the very foundation stones of the gospel church. They saw the Lord Jesus. They witnessed the resurrected Christ. They had been with him during his earthly pilgrimage. He had taught them and trained them and mentored them for some three years. And he was taken from them. But he returned. And they saw him alive. And you know what? We were reading it last night in Mark chapter 16. It keeps repeating when they heard about the resurrection and when they heard about people who had seen the Lord Jesus alive, they did not believe. They did not believe the disciples, the apostles initially, until they saw him themselves and then they believed. And they believed to such an extent that they were prepared to die for what they believed. That's the witness, the gospel witnesses. A Christian is someone who believes the word of God. We are not saying for one moment that a Christian will understand everything in the word of God. We're not saying that. 
But the Christian will say, if it's in God's word, that's enough for me. I believe it. I hope I'll understand it better. It may take time. We have to grow. Our knowledge has to grow. But if we find it in the word of God, this is our view, the Christian's view. I believe. I believe it. There's another thing, thirdly, we would notice here. It's the gospel promises. The gospel promises. We find this in verse 38. It follows on from what the, the people asked. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They heard the news. They heard the gospel. What shall we do? Peter tells them what they are to do. Peter said unto them, in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now there are two things that we notice in this verse. First of all, we notice the gospel promises. Here Peter is giving them two gospel promises. Forgiveness. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. For remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He's telling them to repent. And if they will repent. They will receive forgiveness. I put it to you friends. I put it to you this morning. That this is the thing that. Every single human being longs for. Oh, they might not be able to tell you this. They have a problem. There's a burden. There's a heartache. There's something in the back of their mind. They don't know what it is. Sometimes they try to ignore it. And they might indulge themselves in the world. They might indulge themselves in entertainment or work. Or many other things in order that their minds might be distracted from this issue. But there's something in the back of the mind that troubles every single individual. And this is it. They need their sins forgiven because they know they're not right with God. They know it. There's something wrong. They don't have that relationship that they should have. This is the problem. Their sins are a problem. But in the gospel, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, not just one or two sins, not just some sins, but every sin. Every sin. This is the promise that Peter made to them on that day of Pentecost when he was preaching the gospel to them. Your sins are forgiven. What a promise. What a relief to know that your sins are forgiven. But it's only in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now we're not to think for one moment that when we talk about the gift of the Holy Ghost in this context here, that we're all going to be like the Apostle Peter and we're all going to speak in tongues and we're all going to perform miracles. No. What the apostles experienced was extraordinary. 
They were extraordinary individuals. It was for them and for certain members of the early church. But nevertheless, friends, we do receive the Holy Spirit. And if we don't have the Spirit, we are none of Christ. And he gives the gift of the Holy Ghost to all Christians. And that's to enable them to live a Christian life. That's the two gospel promises. Forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, finally and fourthly, there's something else. There's gospel conditions. And we find it in the same verse, verse 38. What are the conditions? The conditions are quite clearly, Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we could sum that up by saying simply, Repentance and faith. Repentance towards God. Repentance means turning away from our sins. It means forsaking them. It's not enough to confess them. That's part of it. It's not enough to be sorry for them. That's remorse. That's part of it. But repentance goes one step further. And it's a most necessary step. It's whereby we forsake our sins. And we have that desire and determination and drive whereby we forsake our sins. I have to forsake my sins. You have to forsake your sins. What are your sins? You will know them. Maybe it's a foul mouth. Maybe it's uncleanness. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Listen, it'll certainly be pride. Every one of us has proud, is proud. This is a universal sin that affects more people than we realize. It affects us all, some to a greater extent, some to a lesser extent. But we'll all need to forsake our pride. And they would have to forsake their pride. Because, friends, he asks them to be baptized. Go back again to verse 5. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men. For Jews to be baptized... That was for the Gentiles. If the Gentiles were to become Jews, this was part of the procedure. They had to be baptized. A Jew would never be baptized. But Peter's telling these devout Jews, you've got to repent. You've got to believe. You've got to be baptized. Therefore, it was a humbling experience for them. But as we said earlier, some 3,000 or around 3,000 accepted and responded. These are the gospel conditions. They haven't changed. They'll never change. This is our message. This is the Christian message. This is the message of the church. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims upon your life. 
And he tells you and me to repent and to believe the gospel. And this call goes out today, afresh, new today. What then is a Christian? Well, whatever else he is, and it's, we cannot simply define it in one sermon, but whatever he is, or whatever she is, they are ones who have repented and believed. They've turned away from their sins, and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can this be said of you this morning? Maybe it can't. Maybe you can. The call goes out. Repent and believe. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does our text say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, a Christian is someone who is saved. Saved for time. And saved for eternity.